Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? I'm April. And I'm Rachel. This week we have a super special treat for everyone. Thank you for saying so. You'll speak when you're spoken to. (laughs) Our friend Rico Galliano, you might know him from the Dinner Party Download. For those of you who don't know the Dinner Party Download, that's a problem, and you should check that out right away. For real. And for those of you who do, know that it's an amazing podcast filled with really cool icebreakers. And part of the show is a section about history and drinks. Rico, do you want to tell us about that? Sure. Uh, It's called The History Lesson with Booze. It is trademarked. So uh, the fact that I'm here talking about it is okay. If you guys talk about it while I'm not here, I can and will sue you. Um, <laughs> that's not true. The, uh, the history lesson with booze in it, each week we uh, give you a true tale from history, usually that happened the week that the show comes out, uh, but not necessarily. And then after we tell it, we contact a bartender or a bar manager somewhere in the great United States, usually from the city where the history took place, and we ask them to create a cocktail based upon that history, themed after the history, so to speak. Um, uh, so uh, I can tell you, for instance, if you're a bartender, by the way, and we tell a history where somebody is bitter and you use bitters in the cocktail and you think that's really clever, it isn't. Like, that's definitely happened a lot <laughs> on the show. But these tales are often surprising, weird things, which seems right up the alley of the ladies who created a show called Are You Fucking Shitting Me? Because very often that's what I'm thinking as I'm writing these history segments. Um, And actually, this is a uh, very good time to be kind of looking back on some of our history lessons with booze because the woman who reads our history segments, who is a really wonderful woman named Michelle Philippi, she recently uh, left our company, and we may retire the segment because she is no longer going to be there. And it just doesn't feel right, kind of, without her. So we're thinking about it. So, folks, if you if you like these history lessons that you're about to hear, you can. There's like hundreds of them on our website that you can find, and you can listen to back episodes. We'll do something with booze. Trust us, booze is integral to the <laughs> identity of the show. We can never let go of booze. We can't quite let go of booze, um, but uh, it may not be exactly what you're hearing right now. If well, you thanks listen for to sharing you. these with us, then you are welcome. Feel honored. Thanks. Likewise. Let's jump right into them. We're going to start off with one that you let us know because it's baseball season. Yes. It's very topical right now. That's right. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and share that with us? Okay. So, yes, we're in baseball season. We're recording this in Los Angeles, California, where my understanding, I'm I'm not a big baseball follower. My understanding is right now that the Dodgers are in some sort of historic slump which is funny because a a little while ago they were in a historic winning streak. But uh, regardless of who you support, this is an interesting story. Even if you don't care about baseball, this is just kind of a funny tale. So we're going to talk about the longest baseball game, professional baseball game ever played, which occurred in April of 1981. And uh, it was a minor league game which is probably why it's something that many many people haven't heard of. I don't know that there are as many people that follow minor league teams as do, you know, major league teams. So the two teams in question were the Pawtucket Red Sox and they faced the Rochester Red Wings, which is hard to say. And it was a very cold and and windy night that they played 
And they both teams, my understanding is kind of were hoping that the game would not last long because it was kind of cold and windy out. I think you can guess where this is headed, but let's just take it step by step. So they play the first eight innings and they go very quickly to everybody's happiness. And one of the teams, who was it? The, uh, the Red Wings led by one run. Then comes the ninth inning and it gets tied up by the Paw Sox player, Wade Boggs, by the way. I'm not even that big of a uh, baseball fan, but the name Wade Boggs, you know, he's like one of the great uh, major league players. It's a great name, too, because, you know, Wade you know? into the bog. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> right? You'd think that it was a pseudonym. It is not. And he hits this homer, so now it's a tied game, and they go into extra innings. And then a kind of nightmare unfolds as the innings just keep on happening. Nobody can get a lead. Anytime somebody does get a lead, miraculously, it ends up getting tied again. Uh, And it's to the point where there are like dozens of extra innings being played. And because it's windy, there are home runs that seem like they could end the game, but the ball got blown back into the stadium for an easy out. They kept hoping it would end, but it didn't. At last, in the 21st inning, the Red Wings score. They think it's going to be fine. A few minutes later, Boggs keeps the game alive again by getting another tying run. And this is a quote from him. He said, I quote, I didn't know if the guys on my team wanted to hug me or slug me. Also a poet, Wade Boggs. Finally, the score is still tied. It's four in the morning. It's so cold out that most of the people in the stands have left. This is the lore. I'm not sure that this could even legally be true, but the lore is that the team started burning bats in barrels to keep themselves warm in the dugout. <laughs> it seems like somebody would say, like, don't burn things. That would that might burn everything down. But that's what they said. And at 4 a.m., finally, somebody calls the league president and says, hey, you know, these guys are still playing. What should we do? And the president is like, what are you talking about? Stop the game. You should have stopped the game a long time ago. What are you doing? It's a it's America's pastime, not torture. And uh, so they stopped the game. It had gone 32 innings. They had played for eight hours. There were about a dozen fans left in the stands. Apparently, all of them got season passes for the rest of their lives, apparently. <laughs> Lifetime season passes for all those people, uh, because if you're insane and have no life, then you should be rewarded, apparently. But so, and then this is to me, we're always looking for ironic kickers, as we call them at the end of these little historical tales, and this is a great one. So they reschedule the game to be completed later, many months later. And at that point, the major leagues had gone on strike. So this minor league game was the only baseball game going on and it became a televised nationwide event. Everybody that was interested in baseball had only one game that they could watch and it was this one. So everybody's super excited to see this hard fought game continue to be hard fought. And uh, apparently it was over in 18 minutes. (laughs) The Paw Sox won it. And they were coming from behind. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's right. They had more... They had more to lose, and they, they made it happen. They did it. So, so isn't a typical cricket game like two weeks long? That's true. For the English, this is like, so? Who gives a damn? Have you ever watched We're wusses. Cricket? I have not, and I don't understand. Like, I've actually had British people try to explain cricket to me, and I don't know if it's because I kind of don't want to understand the game because it seems like it is probably more refined and more intricate than our game, and I don't want to yeah, believe it. it seems. It is the most boring game I've ever watched <laughs> in my life. 
I couldn't take 18 minutes of it. It was terrible. Well, but let's be fair. And, like, I, and I was annoyingly very vocal about that, which was really, yeah, which I was in, in uh, Ireland watching it, watching, I think it was a college game because it was at Trinity College. So it must have been some college team. Okay. I just wanted to see what it was like. And it was terrible. All it right. was just boring. And it just, you know, I, I was also much younger, so much more. Uh, you were more of a punk. Yeah, I was. I was an asshole. You didn't I was care. an American asshole. Uh, yeah, <laughs> although if it was in Ireland, since I can, I think of it as a British game. Maybe the Irish were like you were kind of saying what they wanted to say to their oppressors. Possibly, but Your people around sucks. me were looking at me like I was an asshole. And but but I kind of felt like if I was. <laughs> At a football game, I'd be saying the same thing because I think football is ridiculous. Yeah, well. you're not really a sports fan, period, right? Yeah, not really. Well, yeah, I like the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let me guess, though. You watch, you're like all of us, right? You watch the Olympics for the stories. Yeah, exactly. Right? They're picking out the players that have stories like the one that I just told, the yeah. like the Wade Boggs right. story or something. Yeah. So it's really like who cares about the actual competition? It's more like uh, I want to see these miniature documentaries about people struggling against... Exactly. I mean, I'll cry at a good figure skating event. I'm actually in it for the ribbons. <laughs> That's another girly thing. Because they're so pretty, right? You tie them in your hair. They're just trippy, man. Oh, it's a drug thing Ribbons for you. are trippy. Wow. Ribbons are trippy should be your yeah, show's um, next. It's 100% gymnastics for me. I agree okay. with that. I like the gymnastics, too. Well, it's but crazy. But there's good stories behind gymnastics. Always. Sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's also this story that's always threatening to happen in gymnastics, which is very young girl, like, hurts her body forever. Like, it's a horrible, horrible thing that those girls do to their bodies. Yeah. Well, they have, they have, yeah, we have. And, and you know, stunted growth and everything. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, right? it's terrible. That's great. <laughs> You're like, yeah. It's like hockey. It's kind of like like a dancer's hockey. Somebody's going to get hurt. So, Rico, what drink went along with that story? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, it is something called the Record Breaker, um, which was mixed by this wonderful woman named Beth Smith at a place called Murphy's Law Irish Pub in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, where the Paw Sox are from, obviously. And actually, this is the thing that's kind of cool about this segment of the show, frankly. Like, me and my co-host, Brendan, actually, when it comes to cocktails, because the cocktails that people come up with are very fancy, the cocktails that Brendan and I like, like, we drink martinis. It's basically cold gin in a glass. Like, if you have gin and a little vermouth and a refrigerator, like, you can make us a fine cocktail. We're happy with that. So we're not necessarily, like, big, fancy cocktail fans. But the people who make these cocktails, first of all, the idea that you give them something about history and it's all verbiage and history, and they translate it into this completely unrelated form is a pretty genius thing. I just like kind of watching artists work, which these people are in a lot of cases. But also, we're talking to these people who often, you know, we've, we only did this because we thought it was a cool idea. When we started interviewing bartenders, we realized that they know tons of stuff they spend all of their time talking to they oftentimes know more about the histories than we even found out they'll know that we have talked to people where the actual person we'll get to one of these later where the person that we were talking about in the history they had met before because they came into the bar so this woman was really cool and apparently like the Pawsocks always hang out at this particular bar uh, I don't know how many bars there are in Pawtucket maybe it's the only one and that's not that big a deal but the drink that they came up with was an ounce of Jim Beam whiskey, 
an ounce of amaretto, three ounces of pineapple juice, three ounces of orange juice, a half ounce of cherry liquor, a quarter ounce of grenadine, and that kind of makes it Red Sox red. And uh, you shake them all together and you strain them into a glass. I can't remember the significance of all of these things, except I know that they wanted whiskey because it's warming. So if you drink it, then maybe you don't freeze to death in the dugout. You don't have pain. to burn a bunch of bats. No. I do think that it should have been garnished with a little miniature bat on fire. That would have been oh, great. Yeah. That would have been perfect. So did you try this drink? No. never. Almost never try these drinks because we're interviewing people from far. We interview them over the phone and they're in Rhode Island. So we can't. Although we do have, look at this. I'm showing you on our website right now as we record this beautiful photograph of the drink which is in a nice tall glass with ice and it's like it looks all pretty and red. It's refreshing. Yes. They are uh, photographed by this woman, Alana Lepkowski, who has a website called Stir and Strain. And that's her thing is photograph. She makes and photographs cocktails and she puts them in interesting sort of sets and things and she'll often garnish them this particular one is just kind of a black background but like we did one about the frisbee and she had a drink that she sort of posed beautifully on a frisbee and like it was the same color of the frisbee and stuff so uh, i get to see them i get to see the drinks and kind of slaver over them but i never get to sample them usually sometimes i make them at home but rarely what have you made and did you like it um, I did. I made one. I'll tell you why I made it, too. I made one. There was a, a thing that we did about the biggest theft of private property in American history, which was uh, the a robbery of fine art from a museum in Boston. Yep. We just did a piece on that. I, I feel like I had heard that. The What is the name of the museum again? Gardner? Gardner yes. And a lot of the stuff that was stolen were Dutch masters, mm-hmm. uh, paintings by the Dutch masters. So the guy who created the cocktail used the Dutch uh, liquor uh, spirit, rather, Yenever, uh, which I love because I'm a big fan of the Dutch. And I actually happen to have Yenever. Also, I was writing an article about Yenever and had like bottles and bottles and bottles of Yenever I had to get rid of. And you can only drink so much of it straight. So I made it. It was like that and sherry because that kind of made it sort of arty and scholarly. Oh, and it had a dash of uh, red. It had a dash of bitters because bitters are red. And he said, you know, in a uh, in a painting, you have a dash of red. So he put a dash of bitters in it. That was really good. What else? What, should, what else should we talk about? Yeah, Rico, what else do you have up your sleeve? Uh, do you want to talk about less fun things, like uh, death and people dying needlessly of... Uh, bizarre floods you know i don't want to joke about people getting hurt in floods but this does also speak to another issue in our contemporary society which is the importance of regulation there were two histories that we did over the and there we recorded them years apart and one of them well let's start with the older one so this is the great british beer flood of 1814 so this was in london and one of the biggest brewers in London at the time was a company called Mew. I'm guessing that that is some sort of Belgian word. And they had this facility that housed some of the biggest beer vats of that era, one of which was 22 feet tall, full of porter ale. And after a while, the pressure on this barrel got to be so much that one of the hoops holding it together developed a crack And it was October 17th of 1814 that it snapped. And the force of the beer shooting out of this thing blew up all the vats of beer around it. 
and a tidal wave of 323,000 gallons of beer ended up smashing through the wall and into the area outside, which was a slum. This is, you know, the 1800s. And uh, so slums are super slummy, like literally buildings made of like very rickety wood. There were people there, because they were poor, some people it was like, hey, this is like party time. Like they went out into the streets with hats and like bowls and things and started scooping beer up out of the streets. But there were some places, some buildings where there were so many people living, they were kind of living in these like tenements in the basement. And the beer flooded the basements, so people drowned in their own homes, oh. in the basements of their slum houses. So finally, they take obviously Mew goes to court, and they were somehow held blameless that this was some sort. I believe they called it an act of God. It's not an act of God if you build a gigantic beer vat that has a lame hoop holding it together. That's God didn't do that. I mean, maybe he did kind of, but it was to pr- to show Mew a lesson, and it was not learned. Parliament later reimbursed Mew, in fact, for the tax that they had paid on all the beer that they lost. Oh, my so, God. That's yeah. disgusting. Yeah. And also sad because it starts off like a Rube Goldberg chain reaction machine and then ends in death. Yeah. You think it's going to be like a great party story where everybody got tons of free beer and and it ends with people drowning in their houses. So that's one fun beer flood. The other super not fun flood of something that normally does not flood was in Boston. Yes. And had you you had heard of this? I just watched it on on part of a documentary, and I don't know if it was about Boston or about floods, but it was <laughs> it was on TV because I like TV, mm-hmm. and it was insane. Yes, here's here's the story. Actually, it's interesting. This was 1919, almost exactly a hundred years after the Great London Beer Flood, in the New World of America, where apparently not much had changed. This was in January 1919. And there's this distilling company, the name of which was Purity, which I find ironic because what happened next was definitely not something that was pure as the driven snow. Um, there was this giant steel storage vat full of molasses. It was 50 feet tall. It was 90 feet wide. And people had said that this thing was really poorly built for a long time. There have been many workers that said, this thing is leaking. It feels like maybe something's up with it. And apparently the company's solution for this leaky gigantic molasses vat was to paint it brown so that you couldn't see the leaks (laughs) which just seems like adding insult to injury not only are we not going to make this safe we're going to do the the least thing that we could possibly do so it's about 12 40 p.m on this cold january day the vat busts open People said that it sounded like machine gun fire because there were those were the rivets in the uh, vat popping out oh, and yeah. shooting out at Holy high shit. velocity. And uh, a 25-foot wave, they said, of molasses. This is uh, uh, the one thing that we did apparently learn how to do 100 years later was make even bigger vats because this wave of stuff was 2.3 million gallons of molasses and it gushed outside It apparently knocked over buildings. Whole buildings were crushed by this thing. And 21 people died. 100 more were injured. And they only figured out, I think it was either last year or this year, they they ran some sort of forensics on what might have happened and why so many people were killed in this thing. And it's because since it was so cold out, the molasses 
became super cooled and became something like four or five times stickier than it normally would be. So people couldn't get to people that were drowning. They just kind of slowly, you know, sat there drowning in this stuff and no one rescue workers couldn't get to them because it was so sticky. Yeah. I remember thinking that is so horrible. Kind of like a never ending story in the swamp of despair when a tray was losing. <laughs> it was exactly like that. That's what that was based on. <laughs> but, that movie. but I remember them talking about how people just were sinking in it. It was so thick. Oh they just, they couldn't God. get out. They couldn't get pulled free. It's the yeah, worst. I was thinking of the quicksand episode of Gilligan's Island. Yeah, quicksand that, or never-ending story. Both of them were directly based <laughs> on the molasses flood of 1919. But it was, and supposedly, this is this feels like hearsay to me, but supposedly, like, dozens of years later, people said on a hot day that you could still smell molasses because it had, like, sort of baked into the wood or something. In this, I area. don't know. I could believe that. Really? Oh my God! Smells of stuff that yeah sticks around for a long time. I guess I, so, but it's like a lot goes on in Boston. There's a lot of rain and snow and things in Boston. It feels like it would be washed away. But what do I yeah, know? What yeah, do I know from molasses? Molasses ghost, ghost molasses. Go- ghost molasses. <laughs> That's amazing. So what drink went along with that one? <laughs> yeah, I know. This, by the way, we did have somebody call in when we... It's it's hard when we have stories like this where true suffering happened. And then it's like, all right, now let's have a festive drink. <laughs> we very often start it by saying, after that story, we really need a drink. Weirdly, something like this is harder to pivot out of and do a drink about than something like... We've had uh, things about narrowly averted nuclear war. And it's somehow easier to joke about that because it's so ridiculous. The idea of a nuclear war is so absurd. As we all know, Stanley Kubrick could only make Dr. Strangelove a comedy, even though it was based on a dramatic book. <laughs> it's easier to pivot away from nuclear war than it is from a molasses flood. But the drink was by uh, someone at State Street Provisions, which is in Boston's North End, right near where the molasses flood happened. A woman named Beth Hoselton. And her drink has, oh my gosh, it's very, it's very complicated. So amber rum, because rum is derived from sugar. And I believe molasses is like one of the byproducts of making rum. Or maybe molasses is the base of rum. Is that what it is? I think you ferment. I think so, yeah. I think you ferment molasses or something. Um, and then it has three quarters of an ounce of molasses syrup just to really molasses that action up. Some Amaro Montenegro. I think that's a type of vermouth. It's sad, isn't it, that I've been doing this for years and years and I still don't know what any of these alcohols are. You know, there's a lot of booze out there. Thank you. (laughs) It's surprising how much we like booze. We just come up with all sorts of ways to drink it. Um, Lime juice and some orange curacao. And uh, for a garnish, you take a scooped out lime and a mint sprig and you put some Hamilton 151 in it. Then you set it on fire. Because Hamilton 151 is like a hardcore, I think it's 151 proof liquor. So you make this kind of minty fire on top of it, I guess, to indicate an explosion. Although I don't know that flames were present at the actual It makes it more dramatic. Sure does. We've had a lot of flaming drinks too. I've learned definitely, like I often wonder too, if we could get in trouble for telling people how to make flaming drinks because some kid's going to try to do at home, like the little thing where you squeeze the lemon rind through a, a lighter. Those kids are already making pipe bombs. They're already smoking crack. I mean, come on. They make meth on the weekends. None of this is making me feel any better about America, but definitely. Well, I come from a small town and plenty of kids made pipe bombs. Really? (laughs) Yeah. It didn't always end pretty. That makes me want to say, are you fucking shitting me? Is that really true? Oh, yeah. There's small town shit. It's got weird stuff that goes on there. Yeah, but pipe bombs? What Mm -hmm. are they? Yeah. You also used to be able to go out to the res and get 
um, M1000s. You get which go is out where? To, stick to the reservations oh, on wow. 4th of July and get M1000s, which are Fireworks. half a stick of dynamite. Um, why, why are they selling those on the reservation? You just go out and say, I want the big booms. <laughs> yeah, why does, why, why does the reservation need those? Uh, they don't need them, but they sell the fireworks in, in the Northwest. And uh, we used to have huge 4th of July parties, like crazy, oh huge God. 4th of July parties where we would have bottle rocket wars from boats. I lived on an island, and we'd go over to the neighbors and shoot them from the front with bottle rockets, and then the little kids would go behind. My brother was shooting a large bottle rocket and hit a former mayor, um, <laughs> or is she mayor or governor, hit uh, Dixie Lee Ray in the head. It went through the window and in and like arched and then hit her in the head. Holy Old cow. lady. It was, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty fun, though. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> of course it is. Fire's super amusing until yeah. you die. I was in Philadelphia on the 4th of July once where I saw my first race riot on the 4th of July. Go oh. America. But, you know, we're here at the Liberty Bell. I'm on South Street. They're playing Rocky. There's this huge fireworks show. It's this, like, America. Mm. And then in the Northwest, it was like, hey, you want to blow shit up? <laughs> it was super <laughs> casual. It was the 4th of July. Uh, People just blew shit up. Wow. I didn't feel patriotism at all. It was just a reason to, like, to blow shit up. To blow shit up. It is amazing. People don't really real. I, I, they don't. Rem- I mean, maybe this isn't everybody, but I do think that there's, there's a portion of childhood where you're just definitely a pyromaniac. Is that just me? Were you? No, that's absolutely true. Yeah, that, yeah, it's weird. I used to go out with my friends on a Friday night. We would go to the local drugstore. We would say, hey, I want a dinosaur egg was one of the things. And he'd go looking for them because we knew they were behind the counter. He'd go looking for them. Then we'd just take big handfuls of the matchbooks, which were there on the counter for smokers. And we'd just pack our pockets with them and then just spend our Friday nights walking around setting shit on fire. It was not good at all. Friday night. <laughs> sure. I used to go to the camping um, stores and get, there's this like gel that was flammable and you could write your name in it and light <laughs> it up. <laughs> Super rad. I'm assuming that it was not, that was not its purpose. No, no, no. It's, you know, it's just very flammable for extreme weathers and, um, and you know, probably you're going camping in the snow or something. Uh, I see. And, it helps Isn't you that kind of like Sterno? It's very much like Sterno. It just comes in a tube. So you could oh, wow. make designs and stuff. And Sterno like, in a that's tube. Awesome. Yeah. Did you ever like just hold a match in front of it and just squeeze the no, stuff I'm through it? No, I'm not an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I am an idiot. Kids are, though. <laughs> Kids are. All right. So let's do one more. This was a, an early history segment that we did that still kind of blows my mind. Although I've found when I've told this that a surprising number of people have heard about it. But uh, we'll see. This starts back in 1944 when the U.S. troops were fighting the Japanese in Guam towards the end of World War II. And this guy, who was a sergeant in the Japanese Imperial Army, his name was Shoichi Yokoi, he was killed in action. So cut to 28 years later, 1972. There are a couple of guys, they're hunting in the Guamanian Mountains, which I love that word, Guamanian. And they come upon the skinny bearded old dude by a river and the dude, they surprised him. They were just kind of walking along and he saw them and he immediately attacked them. And so they clobbered him because he was actually very skinny and emaciated and they hauled him to the local police. And it turned out that it was Sergeant Yokoi. He had not been killed. He had been living in a cave for three decades. He was eating fruit, frogs, snails, and rats. 
He had made his his clothes himself out of tree bark. His only possessions were an embroidered belt from his mother and a Japanese flag. He had known, apparently, that the war was over, but he was an imperial soldier, and they'd been told that the worst fate would be surrender. And so he had just like camped out there for three decades rather than turn himself in. And his first words, apparently, after being sent home to Japan was, quote, I am ashamed that I have returned alive. And, but the thing that's fascinating about him is that he became kind of this super public figure. My understanding is that the society was very conflicted about this guy, that like older folks kind of were amazed by him and kind of admired him for holding out, even though there was a lot about World War II that, of course, they regretted. But that younger people were kind of embarrassed by him as this kind of, you know, figure of their past. But he got lots of people, women, like offered to marry him. And he ended up going on kind of speaking tours. He did get married. He gave lectures about living life simply. And he was one of these guys that he apparently suggested at some point that golf courses should be plowed over and planted with beans, which I love that detail. It's also so, a good idea. It's true. Like there's on some level, yeah. maybe he like learned what was important. He's maybe. Aggressive. I, <laughs> I mean, that is living simply, right? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like he's definitely a badass of some kind. I love that he had a whole life after returning to civilization. Yeah. Like that guy lived three different lives. He lived the life of a soldier, the life of like, you know, a mountain man. And then some sort of, I don't know what you would call his, his final chapter, but it was certainly Do you know how unusual. long he lived after that? I, Is he still alive? I don't. I do not. Oh, he died in 1997. And wow, it, he lived a long time. He did. And this is the other interesting thing. So the drink was made by a guy named Jeff Pleadman at a place called Jeff's Pirate Cove in Guam. And he was the guy I'd mentioned earlier. He had met Yokoi. And he said that he was like a super quiet guy. As you might imagine, he probably got used to not saying much, living alone for three decades. But cool. Like he described him as like actually a pretty cool dude. And he had like come in even after they found him, he would come into this place and have a drink. And he had a drink already on the menu called Yokoi's Green Scene, like named after him. How crazy is that? Like, I'd never heard of this guy at all. We dialed and we're like, oh, well, Guam. Let's find somebody who can speak English in Guam. We call the one bar and the guy's like, oh, yeah, I totally know everything about that story. I've met the guy. And we have a drink named after him already. That is correct. That's amazing. Uh, 1.5 ounces of spiced rum, as you might imagine, for an island. 0.5 ounces of Midori melon liqueur. I'm not sure Midori sounds Japanese to me. Perhaps it is uh, somehow Japanese. Three ounces of pineapple juice because he was living in the tropical jungle, an ounce of sweet and sour mix, some crushed ice and a splash of milk, and you blend it all up into a big, it actually sounds like a really nice, sweet, giant tiki drink. I'm kind of blown away that his sanity, like that he did not lose his mind. Right. With not having another person to talk to for 30 years. I mean, I I haven't seen, uh, what's that Tom Hanks movie? Oh yeah, Castaway. Um, and I know I know I, I should judge movie. all of life by by Tom Hanks movies, and I do. But it seems like you would have a really hard time readjusting. I'm just assuming he probably did have some kind of a hard time. Uh, I'm sure. And it sounded. Did the guy that you talked to at the bar in Guam say he was a little kooky? N- uh, no. The way that he described him as a, as a very quiet guy, and he seemed pretty cool, but I also imagine if he was quiet, he didn't say much, so maybe if he had like lasting damage from this, he wasn't revealing it. 
And by the way, I'm I, he. I I'm not sure about this, but I'm pretty sure that he wasn't the only guy. Like after him, I think they found one or two other people. That on also, Guam, I'm, I don't know if it was in Guam, but I think there were a few other soldiers who had just lived for long periods of time without giving themselves up. It's amazing. Was yes. wasn't there also an American soldier who, like, since we've like that had been a prisoner in Vietnam? Oh, who yeah. oh yeah, finally came home like within the last. 20 years is that right m.i.a dude does that sound familiar yeah maybe hold on vietnam vietnam m.i.a last soldier maybe would i search on google that sounds like a good google search thanks oh an elderly man in vietnam claiming to be a u.s soldier thought killed in action in 1968 however defense department officials say the man was an imposter well that's an interesting story yes with a history of impersonating American POWs. Definitely a movie in there. Wow. That's, I mean, what a strange thing to do too, right? To make a, your life impersonating POWs. Uh, Stars and Stripes in 2014 has a, an article saying, a man who claimed in controversial documentary that he was U.S. Special Forces soldier lost during Vietnam War is an imposter, according to Missing Soldiers Family, which cited DNA test results. See, the thing that I take from all of these things is that war, as we all know, war does crazy things to people. Mm-hmm. And it does it even to people who maybe, I don't know, maybe this guy was a soldier, but I'm assuming that he wasn't actually a soldier. But it does it, it has effects on even people that didn't fight in the war. There's just something about war that just brings out the crazy in people. Well, your memory is such a weird thing anyways. Like human memory is, have you heard of it being described like a Xerox machine? Like the more copies you get, the fuzzier the images or things mm-hmm. get transposed. I was just the other day talking to someone and I was like, I feel like I saw that. And then I realized, no, I had just heard about it. Like I had a memory of watching a movie and I just heard about it. Yeah. You can, you can, you can be made to believe that lots of things happened. I have actually, I have a very vivid memory as a young man. This has nothing to do with war. Luckily, I've never had to fight in one. They, I was a little kid and I was in my backyard in Austin, Texas, and I somehow got locked out of my, uh, out of the house. Like the, the sliding door was locked and I tried to get out from the backyard through the wooden door and I believe to this day that I saw a spider on that door that was like the size of me, like a four foot wide spider. I remember vividly seeing it. I'm sure that that didn't happen, but I have a very, very vivid imagination. You probably watched Kingdom of the Spiders. (laughs) Because that that was on at that time. Um, Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was on TV. I remember seeing it on TV in the 70s. And I was really afraid of spiders. And it was terrifying. That movie scarred me. Do you guys know there's no such thing as a fish? I've told you about there's no such thing as a fish. It's a podcast um, run by the QI elves, the people that would come up with the facts for that British oh, wow. um, story, British fact show QI, mm-hmm. <laughs> game show. Uh, and they found a study that shows that people who are afraid of spiders always think that they're bigger than they actually are and closer than they actually are. Your fear makes them makes you think they're respond bigger. to them in a way that you think they're bigger and closer. That's probably what happened. I was probably, I was like five years old and there was a tiny spider the size of a quarter. And I was like, that's definitely five feet long. (laughs) That's incredible. 
like you just solved it. I feel like I can continue on with my life now. Thanks for having me on the show, you guys. You're welcome. Thanks for being on the show, Rico. That was really fun. <laughs> Thank you, Rico. You're awesome. Thank this was you. Great. So are you. <laughs> Please, if, you, if you're interested, ladies and gentlemen listening, check out our show, dinnerpartydownload.org, on podcast, however you listen to podcasts, or it's probably on a public radio station near you. So thank you, everyone, for joining us, and uh, we will see you next week. Until then, I'm Rachel. And I'm April. Bye-bye.